0: Welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to listen. I've got a really fun one today. Dr. Lee Meller is here to talk about two great books that he wrote. Uh, The first one is called Behind the Horror, The True Stories That Inspired Horror Movies. And there are a ton of movies in this book, uh, but some of the ones that we cover in the interview are Jaws, Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, Amityville Horror, and The Mothman Prophecies. The last one is a less famous movie, but still a very crazy story, nonetheless. And then we jump into his other book, entitled "Conspiracies Uncovered," and this has covers ups, hoaxes, secret societies, and we'll discuss the Men in Black, UFOs, aliens, Area 51, MK Ultra, the Kennedy assassinations, chemtrails. I mean, we got a lot to discuss in this one, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, and make sure to check out. Both of the books, the full stories, because there's a lot uh, in these books that we don't talk about. So, check it out. Welcome to the Chuck Shoot Podcast, Dr. Lee Meller. You got it. I got it! All right. Dr. Lee Meller, how are you doing?
1: I am fantastic. You pronounced my name right.
0: (laughs) It only took (laughs) me two tries. Yeah, Yeah, it's okay. Meller (laughs) like (laughs) propeller. Yeah. Okay, that's how we do it. So you've written some great books here that we're going to get into um, the horror one and then the conspiracy theory one here. Um, But how did you, yeah, there you go. You got them too. (laughs) Free copies for the author. I'm sure. But when did you first get interested in true crime and serial killers and all this stuff? Have you always been interested in that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a latent dis. Sorry. Yeah. I think it's an innate disposition. Okay. And even from a young age, I recall going into video stores. So this would have been the Mm eighties and they had stuff for kids, you know, Disney cartoon posters, smiley little gnomes and things like that. Right. And then they had, this was the era of the slasher flicks. Right. So, Oh yeah. Nightmare on Elm street with like Freddy Krueger's face being torn off with a mechanical claw and Jason seven. And this guy standing with a bloody machete and, I would just look up at that stuff and I'd be like, who are these guys? You know, this is clearly where the action
0: is. (laughs) Did any of that shit scare you or give you nightmares as a kid though?
1: Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a child without nightmares, but strangely, I don't think it was that stuff. The movie that messed with me the most as a kid, well, there were two. Arguably my two favorite horror movies, The Shining. With those two little girls. Oh, yeah. Come out and play with us, Danny. I think I saw that before the age of nine. I think I was about eight when I saw that. That was the perfect time to show a child something that would traumatize <laughs> them forever. And even before that, I saw Jaws. Which you think Jaws, oh, it's a shark attack movie. You know, it's there's no... Sex, or you can't even really call it violence because it's just an animal eating people. So this is something that a seven-year-old can watch. Jaws is one of the few movies where kids get ripped apart. And so I remember that scene with little Billy, I think his name is. Yeah. And he's out paddling on his raft and you see the fin coming up. And then you see from Chief Brody's perspective and the raft and the kid just go... and they kind of upturn and he takes a closer look for a second. And the next time it pans back, there's this bubble of blood that kind of erupts from the sea and yeah. like, it's a kid getting torn apart. And there's multiple scenes in that film. Remember the chief's kid. Oh yeah. Almost gets eaten. And then that guy gets his leg torn off. And so I think as far as horror movies that left indelible marks on me, I think jaws was the worst because and I believe that this is something that is not just me. I think that anyone who saw jaws particularly at the right age mm-hmm. at least became more reluctant to go into the ocean if not outright
0: couldn't do it well, no because I lived on a lake, a freshwater lake, and I would I'd be looking underneath me in the freshwater lake sometimes I'd be like, oh this is it messes with your head it really does. It does. Well, so let's talk about Josh since you brought it up. Um, the interesting thing reading your book that I found that was um, interesting because, again, that's one of the ones in your book that's been on a true, or based on a true story, but um, not that there wasn't shark attacks, but I think what the movie did is they made it look like the shark ate the people whole, but in reality, it was more the shark would just bite off limbs and then these people bled to death. So when, the, when people say they died from a shark attack, that's usually what it is, right? I mean, it's, has that ever happened where a shark has eaten a person whole? <laughs> Well,
1: I don't think so. I don't yeah. think there are sharks that are that big unless it was like a two-year-old. But no, the 1916 Jersey Shore attacks and Matawan Creek and everything that inspired Jaws in that regard, basically shark attacks in the New Jersey area, What? those were all people being bitten into, they didn't die immediately unless they were pulled under. So the first two fit young men who went out swimming on separate occasions over the 4th of July weekend in these New Jersey communities, they were attacked by this same shark, almost certainly. And then people saw it happening and they raced in to help them and they pulled them ashore. And they weren't, like, ripped in half or anything like that. They just died more slowly of their injuries. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, in a way, I, I feel that, you know, the water is their domain. Right. And you talked about <laughs> living on a lake. Yeah. and worrying. Okay, so I have lived on a lake. It's very pleasant. But earlier in my life after I saw the Jaws movie, and this is how I know that my parents must've showed it to me before the age of nine, because I recall what house I was in. So I don't know what the hell they were thinking there, but I remember being on my bed and seeing it as like a raft. And you know, what if the shark just came crashing through the floor? Like that (laughs) head comes up on the ship yeah, and just getting scared to death. And my mom coming up and explaining, okay, but, you know, scientifically, that can't happen because sharks have to be in the water, and me going to her, "Well, but what if it just does? And she's saying, "Well, it can't." And that I find in itself pretty interesting. The world of the adult versus the world of the child, where the adult's saying, like it literally cannot happen. There's no way that a shark can without water, even get anywhere near you it It, it can't live on land it can't flop up the stairs right jump up (laughs) but as a child understanding the point she was making but my rebuttal was yeah but what if it just does (laughs) you know do you know what i mean like it's not that i didn't understand what she was saying right but it's just what if reality breaks what if this time it's different
0: it could be it could happen well and that's what's interesting a lot of these movies you talk about uh, I think the reality is is scarier than the movie sometimes. Like They had to take things out. Like So let's talk about uh, this. This was a, a crazy one. This is a very famous Ed. Is it Gein or Gein? Ed, it's Ed Gein. Yeah. Ed Gein, the Plainfield Ghoul. So this inspired uh, Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Silence of the Lambs to a little bit too. But, I mean, tell people about this guy because I don't know if people know that he inspired. I mean, this was a real person that actually did these things. It's creepy.
1: Old mean Ed Gein. Yeah, so the story of Ed Gein is an interesting one. It is in Plainfield, Wisconsin, and it begins, well, the story transpires in the 50s, but Ed's life, of course, begins much before that. He is born into a family where his father is basically a useless alcoholic, and his mother Augusta, I believe her name was, was extraordinarily religious and domineering. So they began by living in this small town. I don't know how many people were there, maybe, you know, 5,000 at max. And to her, she would watch the goings on in this town in Wisconsin, which there probably were no goings on by any sort of <laughs> right. perspective. And she'd look out the window and be like, Sodom and Gomorrah. So she had to move her family away from this taint. And so she did, she isolated them further in this farmhouse and she would always drill into them. Sex is evil. You don't want to be around women, which is odd for women, woman woman to say, but we've heard stranger things, you know, they are evil and they'll, they'll use their wiles to corrupt you. And it's, ungodly, and then your father is a useless alcoholic, which seems to be true, but just berated him and just dominated the life of Ed and his brother, Henry. And they lived this really insular kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre like existence, where it was really just them. And they were going to school, elementary school, for a bit, but they were so inculcated with this doctrine of stay away from girls just generally, especially Ed. And also the fact that Ed was kind of feminine, ironically, and he had a lazy eye and and he lisped and he was just socially awkward and weird. From my psychological perspective, I would say he probably had something like approaching schizophrenia maybe not fully there maybe Hmm. they didn't diagnose it but there are things like schizotypal disorder right schizoid personality disorder where it's it's close to schizophrenia Mm you know you've got the affect and sort of the the weirdness but you're not quite there so uh, he was all he was odd anyway and then coming from this background it just made him unable to socialize so their lives were confined to this farm. And of course, the body says you want to be a sexual being. You want to meet women. And I mean, that's right. it's natural, but they've been bombarded with this ideology, this religious mm-hmm. stay away from them. And it's like mother was the only. So he just had the
0: mom and the brother and then the brother dies in a fire, which it's plausible that he maybe could have killed his brother. Right?
1: Exactly. So dad wastes away because of the drink and just neglecting himself. And then he's left for a short time with mother, mom and brother Henry around this time. Henry starts to express rebellious thoughts and he's saying them to Ed, but he's going, and they're quite old at this point. I think they're right. in their 40s or late 30s. He's saying to Ed, you know, I don't know about mom, like if everything she says is true. I kind of like to start my own family and have my mm. own farm. And he's telling this to Ed, probably the only person he thinks he can confide in. Well, Ed is devoted to mother and maybe Mm. Henry underestimates this or just Henry doesn't have anyone else to tell. Right. And so, yes, there's a fire that breaks out around the farm. So not in the structures, but like in the brush around the farm and Ed and Henry go out to combat the fire. And then Ed claims that he lost track of Henry. He summons the police and they show up and they go and they find, henry dead of what seems to be something like smoke inhalation yeah but i mean you're looking at police officers in plainfield wisconsin back in the 50s where probably nothing happened ever right and they don't really understand the true dynamic of this family and i think it's a reasonable hypothesis to say ed might have killed henry
0: yeah. And then the mom dies. So then, and I think she died of natural causes. So then it's just Ed living Long by himself later. and he has no friends, like nobody. And so then this woman goes missing. And of course he's a suspect cause he's a, he's a weirdo guy of town. So they go to this house and then they just find all this crazy shit. And it turns out this guy was like digging up graves and like he had a woman's, like you said, he wanted to be a woman. And he had a suit that he had made that like, I mean, just some weird uh, uh, human skin lampshade. I mean, all sorts of weird body parts. And and that's what kind of really inspired like the, the, the horror movies.
1: Yeah, basically what happened is that there was a woman called Bernice Warden who ran a hardware store and her son came back after being out hunting. He was something like a deputy locally And he heard at the local gas station, like, how come your mom's store was shut all day? And he's like, uh, it shouldn't have been. And so he went to check it out and mom was gone. There's a rifle that they kept on the wall lying on the counter and there's a trail of blood going outside. So it's pretty obvious that, (laughs) um, that mom's in a lot of trouble, if not dead already. And so then he thinks wait, that weirdo, Ed Gein, he was in here yesterday and he asked my mom to go roller skating in the past. And the mom's like my,
0: 56 or something like that, right?
1: Right, which at the time, you know, if you're 56 now, uh, keep in mind, this is the 50. So 56 was like 70, yeah, you know, yeah. in terms of physical appearances right. and uh, and the way that people aged. And he's asking this woman to go roller skating And so they're always kind of wary of Ed, but the day before he had spoken to her son and said, Hey, when's the next time you're going hunting? And I guess he had answered well tomorrow. And then he clued in, he goes, Ed Gein. And so he goes with local law enforcement and they try and find Ed and Ed is actually over at a neighbor's place and that's a long story because that's not a usual thing, so buy the buck to find right out. right. Like gaps to get filled. but they arrest him on suspicion of murder, and then two of them go to his house and they go to enter through the summer kitchen. It's night and there's snow outside. So just picture this in your head. It's Wisconsin, totally flat, you know, moonlight cold. And they go to go through this summer kitchen and as they're walking through, the darkness one of them feels something bump against them and i think they had maybe a flashlight or or some source of light but anyways they looked up and they saw it was bernice warden's corpse naked dressed like a deer hanging from the rafters they both run out one starts puking into the snow while the other calls for backup Yikes. as you said to make a long story short they spend days exca- excavating um, and exploring this property and it is well it isn't like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre it inspired the Texas Chainsaw sure. Massacre all the skulls the furniture made from skin
0: so creepy
1: yeah it, it really is it I mean to this day people talk about Jeffrey Dahmer I'm just like he's not not again. I mean they didn't go that far he didn't make his whole apartment out of
0: flesh right? no but he was making a, a shrine or whatever they said that that was the he was yeah, working on he, he
1: had one little item that yeah yeah ed ed did the house as a shrine
0: but it? ed didn't really he only technically maybe killed two people that they know of it was a lot of more
1: yeah so yeah. uh what they do is while they're looking at around this place, they find a bag and inside the bag, they find the head of a tavern keeper who went missing in 1954 called Mary Hogan. And they're like, Oh my God, he did Mary Hogan too. So you've got to put yourself in their shoes. They're going like, okay, how many vaginas are there in this box? They seem to be, have been preserved with salt. How many. Creepy have we found, how many nipples like, and they're going to themselves before the term serial killer was even coined they're thinking how many people has this person killed and why haven't we noticed them all going missing well ed's in custody he just calmly just starts explaining he doesn't really try to duck it because he's weird (laughs) and i guess there's he also figures there's no way getting out of it anyway then he says well you know most of it i just dug up from the graveyard
0: so So creepy
1: that turned out to be true. And yeah, the whole thing with the graveyard, there's so much to this story. So it's in behind the horror. Just to answer your question about the woman's suit, Ed had read in a magazine about a successful sex change operation. I think that was performed in Europe and he became obsessed with this. And so he started harvesting, women's body parts from these grave sites to make into what he termed a woman's suit or the detectives might have turned it that and so essentially just taking parts of dead women and sewing them all together to make a vest and little pants and creepy a wig and he would go frolicking in the Wisconsin moonlight.
0: Can you imagine seeing that like on your, uh, your ring doorbell or something from your neighbors doing that now? I mean, now that everything's got cameras and everything. It's crazy.
1: I bet you it's not much different in Plainfield, although they probably do have cameras. <laughs> the farm, but It's okay. the amazing thing. So kids had gone over to Ed's house because he was good with kids because he was really a kid. But, oh yeah. Oh. Local kids had gone over and they'd go back to their mom and dad and they'd be like, you know, Ed has all these shrunken heads and the parents would be like, that's nice. Oh, uh, they know, just though. thought it was I mean,
0: fake or that, something. Okay.
1: Yeah. if They would have listened Weird. to the kids and yeah. actually gone and checked. No. Yeah. Because Ed loved these boys adventure magazines and <laughs> such. So okay. he, he would learn about head shrinking tribes. And Crazy. so he wanted to try this stuff out. So in summary, this case goes on. If you guys know the horror movies, if you haven't seen these three horror movies, you absolutely have
0: to. Oh yeah. Classics, but
1: psycho that's the whole mother, right angle and becoming mother. Cause that was one of the things that they postulated that Ed was sort of replacing his mother. They believed that he would maybe dress as his mother and talked to himself as if it was his mother, which would make sense. Given mm-hmm. the way he was socialized and raised. And also the whole sex is evil thing. I mean, Janet Lee. Yeah, that's right. Killed, right? So we know for a fact that Ed Gein inspired Psycho. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is more the necrophilic elements and the whole dead skin mask that mm-hmm. Leatherface wears. So out of all these movies I'm mentioning, the one that's probably going to most resemble Ed's house is the one in the Texas chainsaw massacre, which totally. is totally pretty shocking if, and watch the 1974 Tobey Hooper one. Don't watch yeah. the remake. No, that one's awesome.
0: What yeah, about, and, um, um,
1: the, the, yeah, the final one was *Science of the Land. Of
0: course, yeah, with Buffalo Bill, oh, that was a creepy one. That, Buffalo Bill. and uh, but so with the demons and the ghosts, mo- there's like six movies that you talk about that kind of have those themes: the *Exorcist*, *Poltergeist*, Evil Horror*, *The Conjuring* one and two, and *Annabelle*. And it seems like there's I've noticed the theme with the, with those ones is that you you kind of debunk a lot of the stuff in those movies as. You, th- it seems like you kind of present the evidence that a lot of it was faked. That a lot with the, the kid with the Exorcist and the Poltergeist, a lot of it was kids playing jokes on people. Is that correct?
1: Well, I was asked to write a book called "Behind the Horror: True Stories That Inspired mm-hmm. Horror Movies," and so I've got to tell you the true story. That's right. the way that I looked at it. I can't give you a fictional account, I have to the best of my ability say, well, this is what happened. This is what inspired it. So if there is trickery involved, which of course, when your gut claims, this outlandish, you have to look for other explanations. Then that's part of telling the true story.
0: But is that, do you think it's a hundred percent trickery or do you think, cause like the one of the exorcists, it was this little kid. And I mean, the, the, the things they talk about, like the priest, it's based on a priest's diary. Right. And he was freaked yeah. out. Right. They're, they're, but then yeah, they say the, the kid was known for playing pranks, but how do you, I mean, shaking a bed I can get and some of the stuff and speaking in tongue tongues, that stuff's easy to fake, but some of it wasn't right. I mean, or at least based on the move, like with the stuff that they saw, they showed in the movie. I mean, obviously yeah. it's not a hundred percent accurate, so but
1: the, the movie would have been a vast exaggeration okay. of what really happened. And the movie, once again, if you haven't seen it, it's one of the best. I love the Exorcist, the original.
0: Oh yeah, it's a classic
1: too, albeit different. But yeah, I mean, you have to situate yourself, I think, in the interpretive world of the people who are looking at this. So in the Exorcist, there's, sorry, in the case of Roland Doe that inspired the Exorcist. That's a pseudonym, by the way. Mm-hmm. right. There are no scientists really involved in this process. It's all done kind of in by a, a re, his religious family or in the presence of his pastor, and then it's passed over into the hands of the Jesuits. So I would say that you're not bringing a real critical thinking debunking mind to this so all the reports that we have of what happened come from people who are predisposed to believing in a certain world schema anyway now that doesn't mean that they're doing it maliciously it doesn't mean that they're lying it means that they are they are Cognitive confirmation bias. Is
0: that what it's called? Or some sort of bias. There you go. That,
1: yeah. That's it. Confirmation bias. Okay. Cognitively confirmation biased. To so,
0: but to of those, to- yeah. Of those six movies. Um, Cause it, sound, it sounds like you kind of debunk all of them, except the conjuring Two. That's the one that you say that truly was a remarkable tale. Some of the events are not clear cut there. There is. Cause there was like policemen there that were witnessing this stuff. This wasn't just like, it seemed like it would have been hard to fake that one.
1: Yeah, but the Poltergeist case, too, of uh, the Herman family in 1648 Redwood Path and Seaford Long Island, that had police presence all over it. And the kid tricked them as well. I mean, there are, trust me, I've worked with police, uh, quite a few, and there are excellent, really, people underestimate how intelligent some police officers can be! Oh yeah, Talking great minds here, and then there are total write-offs. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it's a bit like academia.
0: Okay, uh, yeah, academia. no, that's fair. That's a good comparison. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's and possible so, oh, the way, academics yeah. get involved in this stuff. Yeah. You-
0: <laughs> it's possible yeah. that 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 um, that these, these these were all just people playing like the Amityville horror. I think they even came out and later said, "Oh, we just." We you know we thought this up over a couple of bottles of wine or something, right?
1: What happened was they had colluded with the lawyer of Butch DeFeo. So the Lutzes, who owned 112 Ocean Avenue, I think that's right, in mm-hmm. Amityville, they had moved in for a short period of time into a house where a guy called Butch DeFeo had murdered his entire family. Butch DeFeo only died recently, by the way. Oh and that in itself is fascinating to look at and yeah. a spoiler it seems to have been want womp, womp financially motivated uh, motivated he wanted to pass it off on somebody else did the massacre he inherits the house he gets all the family money oh so yeah uh, that's the criminologist and me coming out i looked at that pretty carefully okay but yeah so the luxes moved in they were the first family to move in i believe after the defeo massacre and they move out quite quickly. And then they start talking about these ghostly experiences they had there. And they work with this writer, Jay Anson to come out with a book, which is a bestseller called the Amityville Horror, which culminates in the film, which I would say is inferior to the book, but accurately represents more or less the goings on.
0: That movie scared the shit out of me when I was a kid, because I was in like fourth grade and it says, based on a true story. So I thought, okay, this shit is real. This shit is going to happen. And then my dad's like joking. He's like, yeah, it's weird. I saw this like black ooze coming out of the wall over there. And I was like, you know, I'm like freaking out. So I did not sleep for like a year, but now we can, I can rest easy. This was all a big hoax,
1: right? Well, you you know, what got me too was a Texas chainsaw massacre with, it turns out the narrator at the beginning was John Quest.
0: Yeah. From from night Night Court. court.
1: I didn't know that. I just hear this authoritative male voice saying "Yeah, the story you about or about to hear is the true account of the right. We fell five youths. and I'm like, okay, it's true. Like the, movie <laughs> me, you know, and so then I'm going to my public library and going, why can't I find anything about this? So, yeah. How did
0: they get do away you- with that? How can they say it's a true story when it's totally, I mean, it's, it was kind of inspired, like we said, from the, the guy case, uh, case, but it wasn't totally true at all. I mean, it was a very big stretch.
1: Right, and Blair Witch being the next step in that. Where, oh, right, yeah, I forgot documentaries about that. And played the documentaries on TV mm. that seemed to support that this false history of this place where the Blair Witch took place. So, they saved a lot of money on the actual filming and they put it all into the marketing, which was ingenious. But let's segue quickly back to Amityville. Oh, okay, so they, they, yeah, they Jay Anson uh puts out this book, and then the the film comes out and it's making a fortune and the Lutzes screw up because they had got together with Butch DeFeo's lawyer. And as you said, over a bunch of wine bottles, it was been described as George was drinking bottles. So Mm. who knows if the others participated, the three of them, George Lutz, Kathy Lutz and DeFeo's lawyer concocted the story of what would have happened there. And they were supposed to collaborate. On a buck about it, and the Lutzes just cut out Defeo's lawyer. In retrospect, oh. they don't seem like very bright people when you see how they didn't cover their ass. But
0: the right? the shit they came up with, I mean, it's like so spooky. It sounds really, cre- I mean, it's really creative. If it's totally made up, yeah. it's it's. I don't know how maybe they got it from some other book or some other mo- movie I don't know but yeah either way I think that it was a good movie when I was a kid I rewatched it recently and I was like oh why was I scared of this, this is nothing
1: Yeah <laughs> no it doesn't age well uh, so yeah I watched all these movies after I wrote about them to see which ones were the best and Amityville was fairly low uh-huh. on that, that list of course there's a lot of classic
0: yeah. movie films Well what about um The Town That Dreaded Sunset I mean that's not necessarily Um, a classic movie, but the case is interesting because it's a uh, two reasons from my opinion. It's a true story based on this guy, the phantom killer who targeted teenagers and lovers lane. Um, But also the second part that's so fascinating to me is that they never caught the guy. And so, I mean, likely now he's probably dead, but did they not try DNA for that one at all?
1: I don't know if they have, let me tell you about that. So the town that dreaded sundown was sort of a very low budget Indie Southern horror movie, a slasher, arguably the first slasher, by the way, it's debated whether it's that Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Psycho or some say Halloween, but yeah, uh, shot on an extremely low budget and based on the childhood recollections of the filmmaker about some things that were happening in Texarkana, Arkansas, which gets its name from being on the Texas Arkansas Louisiana border in the forties. And that was essentially that there were couples going out to lover's lanes. So this is pre son of Sam pre Zodiac. And in the first instance, and this is how we know a little bit about the killer. This couple is out at this lover's lane. And suddenly this man with this mask over his face appears and he orders them out of the car with a gun and he pistol whips the young man down. The woman starts to run. He chases after her. He knocks her down. He sexually assaults her with the barrel of of the gun. And then he goes back to beat up some more on the young man who's been pistol whipped. And while he's doing that, she manages to come to and she runs to a nearby farmhouse and she sees a a car that she believes is his speeding off. Now that's all we really know about the perpetrator as uh, you know, she thought that he was black and because they both survived. Right. Her boyfriend thought that he was white. And so they don't even have that correct. Yeah. And they both were severely hurt in that attack. She left town, never came back to Texarkana. Then after that, he starts to kill them. And once again, just lovers' lanes, couples going out to neck or maybe thinking they're going to do that, but he just somehow finds them in these cars. I'm guessing he's staking out probably probably the area more than the actual people and then coming up and using a gun to control them. What I found out, which has been sort of suppressed, but what I found out during the research of this book is that the women were all sexually assaulted and then seemingly redressed. He probably had them redress rather than redressing their corpses. But then, yeah, he just shoot them all dead. Crazy, Yeah. And they never (sighs) got him. They had suspects. They actually thought it was a guy who had a wife who had a quite lengthy criminal record, but they were never able to pin anything on him, so. But the good news is
0: he's probably dead now, or he'd be like a hundred or something, right?
1: Yeah, there's no way he yeah. could still be alive. Okay, he's the oldest person on earth. Yeah, because let's say he was 20 at the yeah. time, 1926. Yeah, well, he wouldn't be the oldest person on earth, but he'd be very old.
0: He'd be very old. So anyway, and there's some other ones that we don't have time to get into every movie, but Nightmare on Elm Street, sounds of the lamb Scream. But what about uh, Mothman Prophecies? This is one of your favorite run, ones, right? Because you said you wrote this. It felt like you were writing it on acid or so. And actually, I think you said you did write it high. Is, am I wrong on that?
1: Not, not in my book. So you listened to another podcast. Yeah, I did.
0: Yeah, yeah. You said that. So I was like, oh, that's funny. And this one's interesting because you don't. Uh, you don't debunk a lot of the ones you say, but then this was later debunked with blah blah. You don't debunk this one. And I thought, I thought I read, and now I couldn't find the article. I thought it was that the, the thing that people were seeing was actually an owl. Did you hear that theory before?
1: I've heard things like some sort of heron or crane that was radioactive because of nearby factories. I've heard all kinds of explanations,
0: really? but this yeah. guy that says Woody Darren. Derenberger, he says he went on a spaceship with an alien. I mean, this is a little out. Some of the aspects of the story are a little out there, right?
1: Some of them. The whole thing is crazy, but I enjoy the backstory to the Mothman stuff a lot more than the supernatural stuff. And, and by the way, I do like the supernatural stuff. I like stories. I'm not just this, you know, rational, common sense scientist. I, I like <laughs> fun stuff too. Yeah. Right? But. Once again, it I was interesting it
0: was so reading good. the books though, because both of your books, um, the conspiracy theory, I'm thinking conspiracy theory, like you're all in on it, but a lot of it, and we'll get to that in a minute is like, you've, you've debunked a lot of these conspiracy theories, or you're kind of more of a skeptic, I would say than, than, a,
1: Well, it's a good starting point. I yeah. think that you have to, because in behind the horror, I also write about the witch, right? It's a more recent film. Yeah.
0: That's a creepy movie. That was
1: inspired by the Salem witch trials. So if you want to know why I start as a skeptic buy the book and read about what happened during the Salem, which,
0: yes, that's a good one. You'll
1: see. Yeah. Why I believe starting from a place of reason is not only uh, the sensible thing to do, but it can actually stop people from dying and social contagions. And,
0: but so what is your going back to Mothman prophecy? What is your final analysis of that one? I mean, because there was some things like they said something bad was going to happen. And then this bridge collapse and there was over a hundred adults reported seeing this quote unquote moth man. And there was a lot of just weird stuff going like, it was like you said, I think it's, you know, if it's one or two people or family, you know, they can make things up, but this was like a whole town and it's hard for a whole town to be on on this.
1: Yeah. There was the moth man, which was this red eyed winged uh, tall creature that a lot of them would see Around uh, uh, there was there was some kind of like factory or plant in in town, and most of them saw it there, and they would physically manifest. If the reports are accurate, I mean, I wasn't there, but I'm reading in the books by you know John Keel about it. You know, their eyes would be physically burned as if they'd been exposed to radiation. So huh. I, I mean, if you want to be skeptical about that, you could just say, well, he just made that up and and maybe that's the case. I don't know that there has been a thorough debunking of Mothman because it is so peculiar and it happened to so many people. Rather than these enclosed haunted house
0: mm-hmm. spaces
1: where you can, you know, what I mean, it's a more controlled yeah. environment where Mothman plays out in this entire in several communities. Uh, so yeah, that's essentially you're right that a lot of people saw. Uh, I think yeah, I think it was like a hundred people saw this large red-eyed winged thing and it would chase after them sometimes and follow them like flying over them as they were driving down the road. I was just kind of saw it walking by like, you know, chilling. And uh, then Crazy. along with that, there's yeah. Like uh, Darren burger, what Woodrow Darren that you mentioned, he's driving down the street in the area and he sees this, what he describes as being like a spacecraft fly over top of his car and land in the road right in front of him. And so he stops, of course, you know, this is going to f- ramp it over the UFO like evil can evil. So <laughs> the, the do- this door opens up and this man comes out. And I've got the description in the book, but the part that stands out to me is that he's got this big grin on his face. And he walks over and Derenberger starts tele- um, telepathically hearing his voice in his head saying, Hello, my name is Cold, Indrid Cold. Don't worry about me. Your country is much stronger than my planet. I would like to come and visit you at your house sometime. Well, now, bye. And then not just him claiming that happened, but like saying that, oh, he comes and he visits me at my house, like actively in real time. And the police are aware of this stuff at the time. So uh, I think, yes, uh, there was so much to tell with Mothman, as you know. It let's say the apex of it is the Silver Bridge, which goes from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, over to Ohio, collapses around Christmas time. All these people drown in the freezing waters, and according to John Keel, who wrote the Mothman prophecies, someone he knew had had a dream about this happening to her, and she was one of the people that went into the water. If huh. I recall that correctly. And so it seems that, you know, people have said, was this Mothman or was this Ingrid Cold some sort of harbinger of what was about to happen? Did they cause it to happen? It's just a a really good story to riff on. But had I had the time, I would have gone into the men in black who appear after the Silver Bridge has collapsed. And this could be a segue into the conspiracies. Book.
0: Sure. Yeah. Cause you talk about yeah. that in the conspiracy that you don't know if these are either, um, well, th- these are just theories again, we don't know, but they could be government agents or aliens posing as human government agents, um, that arrive in threes after people see a UFO or an alien. And, um, some this guy, Al- what was his name? Threes. Alien Albert K. Bender started a UFO bureau that had all these strange incidents, people in black suits with flashy eyes and sulfur smells, and then he says, some of it, I mean, some of this stuff is just almost laughable. He says they transported him to their spaceship in the South Pole, and they are from the planet Kasich. And this this one starts to get kind of laughable.
1: <laughs> sort of. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I felt that one was kind of self-debunking. At least that part of it. So he's yeah. making it up. He himself is on a ton of drugs. <laughs> or he's out of his mind psychotic. I really highly doubt that I would bet everything I own that that didn't actually happen, and it, uh, but yeah, he stopped his magazine, and he so he, he did make life adjustments as a result of this experience. Now that's sort of the more the most intense Men in Black case that I write about in the Men in Black chapter in the book that we're now moving on to, conspiracies uncovered. Yes, follow up to behind the horror. So yeah, that one sounds just zany and stupid, but there are other more subtle cases of the men in black that I find more captivating. And often it's after a UFO sighting or something like that. These men in black suits will appear at the house of somebody who saw a UFO. And (coughs) on many cases, the person has said they drove this big black car, but I didn't hear it pull into the driveway. It's kind of lucked out and it was there. Huh. It's almost like it hovered there or it apparated there, something, something like that. And then they get out and they knock on the door and they all have these really generic names. And this was true of in the Mothman case too, when they were interviewing people after about Mothman and such and they're like hello i'm mr brown this is mr jones <laughs> they've just these completely blank names i think that's where they got the idea for smith from the in, in the matrix from by the way okay yeah and they come into the house and they'll say you know what did you see and but they act weird so there's reports of them like not knowing how to use a knife and fork or how to you know, drink out of a bottle or trying to eat the cat or something. I mean, I'm kind of pulling this out of the air, but yeah, they always act strange. And the way that they're described physically is like their skin seems like too taut and, and somewhat artificial and the light glares on it strangely. And the way they speak and communicate, it's like, they've sort of learned the English language, but imperfectly. And there's this, just generally creepy feeling about them. Like they're not quite human. What is that called? The something Val, the uncanny Valley oh. is yeah. Yeah. The uncanny Valley. It's like when you see a robot, you know, those high grade robots they're doing now mm-hmm. that, uh, that look very much like a human. Body? Oh yeah. Like if you saw a robot that was like C3PO You don't find that creepy because it doesn't look anything like a human. Right. But the closer you get to it looking like a human, the creepier it gets. And that has been called the uncanny Valley. So I think that the men in black have like this uncanny Valley effect on people where they're in their presence and they're going, you know, you don't seem right. So people have taken this and they've, tried to interpret what it is. And I would say there's kind of two main camps. (laughs) One is that they are extraterrestrials masquerading as government agents. So the reason that they're creepy and imperfect is because they're aliens pretending to be humans and they haven't quite got it all down. Right. The other camp is that these are, Actually intelligence or FBI officers and that they're showing up after these sightings and that they're doing a kind of psyop where they're acting weird to make the person feel like they're having this alien encounter and then to scare them into si- silence or possibly continue to perpetuate this myth of an alien encounter that's
0: like did you see that movie mirage men where these disinformation agents they convinced this guy that he saw a ufo and it was all bs but they just wanted to mess with his head so that he would wouldn't be credible credible because he heard all these like uh, military communications on his like ham radio or whatever yeah. and so they wanted to make him uncredible so they just they convinced him he saw aliens and then he literally went to like a mental hospital it's pretty crazy
1: yeah and Having written extensively on intelligence agencies, particularly the CIA, for conspiracies uncovered, I would not put that past them at all.:
0: So what so. do you think's going on in the area 51 then? Because they talk about that guy, uh, Dennis, who's later uh, revealed to be Bob Lazar, and I think that guy's been on like Rogan and stuff, but you say in your book, yes. what?
1: Yeah. He's been on Joe Oregon a few
0: times. Yeah. So you, but it's interesting. You point out in your book, cause he says that he went to MIT or Caltech or something. And you point out in your book that his high school records showed he only had one science class and he was in the bottom third scores. So there's no way he could have gone to MIT.
1: Well, there's also no record of him being at MIT or Caltech either. And this is where my memory is failing me a bit, but the guy who, originally started looking into Bob Lazar and, you know, to see whether he was actually employed at area 51 did find his name on a list of employees, Mm. but then, and so he was like, aha, that confirms it. But then a ufologist, one who had a serious interest, I think in believing that UFOs were true and his name isn't coming to me right now either. Mm -hmm. So he came along and he looked at it and he said, "Well, look, he's on the list, but he, this is a list of all, I think it was like Department of Energy employees or something like that. They're, huh. they're all part of the same department. And the code that was next to Bob Lazar's name was not working at the NT. What's was what the NTTS? NTTR, no, NTTR, which is basically this massive space in." nevada in the mojave desert where area 51 is just one little section of it and they've detonated 928 nuclear bombs there by the way the story of what actually has gone on there yeah fascinating.
0: So, so do you think it's more just military technology and stuff rather oh, yeah, than aliens right. and UFOs? Cause my buddy had an interesting point the other day. He was saying that, you know, it's mathematically possible that aliens exist, but that it's, ma- it's all mathematically possible that we'll that more likely that we would never see them because of the universe is so big that if there's life out there somewhere, the chances that we would come across it and they would be alive at the same time and be able to find each other. It's like a needle in a haystack.
1: The best statement I've heard on it is if extraterrestrials did exist, they would be so technologically advanced to make it to our planet that if they didn't want us to know they existed, we never would, and if they wanted us to, we couldn't no government agency on earth could stop them. So this sort of in-between thing where like, oh, they crashed their crash their spaceship and we've got their bodies over yeah. here. It doesn't really jive with a civilization that would have the technology to, you know, go faster than the speed of light and, and cross galaxies. Right. It just right. those two things don't accord. So yeah, when somebody took a more critical look at Bob Lazar's background, they're like, well, he didn't work at area 51, according to this, you know, which this journalist had looked at and said, well, that proves it. He had worked for the same kind of overarching department, but Mm. not specifically at that, uh, at that facility. So, uh, yeah, I'm a bit skeptical of Bob Lazar though. His story is really, once again, it's like the Amityville horror. It's really well-conceived. No, he said. Essentially, he was brought in to work on everything. Was compartmentalized, which it probably would be, because the U two spy planes that they actually built there, which probably were the flying saucers that people were seeing, they were taken there in pieces and they were wrapped uh, so so nobody could see them, and then they were assembled there. So the idea of compartmentalization—that's an intelligence operation for sure. But he said that he had just received this it was like a power source and some sort of propulsion device and when the journalist came back to him and said well how do you know that this wasn't just government technology that humans had made he said because it operated on an, like anti-gravity so it used gravity to propel itself which hmm. defies all known laws of physics
0: yeah. It's out there for sure. What about, um, should we move on to, uh, uh, this one I know is true. And I talked, I had Jay Dyer. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I had him uh, last week and we were talking about MK Ultra. This one is oh, so yeah. fas- fascinating to me. And, um, I think there was some new stuff in your book that I didn't know about how they, um, it was interesting. So they, what they did is they, You know, before there's they talk about you know waterboarding and torturing people to get them to spill the beans. But what MK Ultra found out is if they just drugged a lot of these guys and gave them LSD and and had hookers have sex with them, then they would spill the guts their guts without having to torture them. Like, oh, this is a lot easier.
1: Yeah, that's the one time I wish that an intelligence agency did prey on me. (laughs) 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 But yeah, so that was Operation Midnight Climax. Uh, So MK Ultra. To make a long story short, is established by 1953, it grows out of the Cold War and the idea that the communism is essentially brainwashing. And and that term, brainwashing, actually came from the Chinese wash brain. It didn't enter the English lexicon until the early 50s during the Korean War. And so a lot of the initial MKUltra sprung from those concerns and operation midnight climax was one of the first widespread operations that the mk ultra uh, branch of the our project of the cia tried and essentially they set up these kind of apartments in san francisco new york a couple other places and the guy who ran the one, I think it was in San Francisco, was called George Hunter White. Really interesting character. He's he looks a bit like Kingpin from the Marvel comics, and he would sit on the other side of a one-way mirror, drinking a pitcher of martinis. <laughs> and Martini, I should say, singular, as it's in the well, with many martinis. It gets confusing. <laughs> so, drinking a pitcher of martinis. And watching these hookers and their Johns basically screw on acid. Now, the way they'd set this up is they'd spoken with these sex workers and they'd said to them, look, if you bring your clients back here and you slip them this acid, they can't know about it, by the way, you slip them this acid, then have sex with them. We want to watch and observe what's happening, and in return, if you go to jail for, you know, prostitution, we'll bail you out. We're hmm. the CIA, essentially. So that was the deal. I okay, given topped them up with a little bit more money too, but that was the kind of deal that they had going on there. And they ran these for, they ran these for like more than ten years, I think.
0: Do you think this stuff is still going on? They just call it something else now? I mean, not this particular uh, project, but MK Ultra. this
1: kind of like. Mm, so, yeah. What happened with MKUltra was that in the 70s, when Nixon went down for Watergate, the head of the CIA, Richard Helms, who was at that time overseeing MKUltra, was approached by Nixon and Nixon said, man, you got to help me cover this up. And Richard Helms is like, no way you're on your own. And Nixon goes, okay, well, you're on your own. And then Richard Helms realizes, oh my God, like all the naughty stuff we've been up to. And now I don't have Nixon to protect me anymore. So he starts destroying all these documents. All right. By that time, there was uh, various commissions that stepped in and he didn't manage to destroy all the documents. So we don't even know the extent. Of what they did.
0: Oh, crazy. And
1: just a little hint. It's in my book. <sighs> Charles Manson might have been on that list.
0: Ted uh, Kaczynski.
1: yeah, Kaczynski too. Mm-hmm. The MKUltra chapter is my absolute favorite. And it is at, at least let's put it this way. There's no conspiracy theory part about the existence of the program. Right. Or Operation Midnight Climax or some of the horrible things they did. Yeah. Conspiracy theory parts start more when you, you get to the very extreme stuff. Sure. Yeah. So um, anyways, it, it comes out. Yeah. It actually happened. So of course they have to shut it down. But the question is like, does it mean they really shut it down or did
0: it morph into something else? Or did they start a new thing or yeah, who knows?
1: There you go. Because before well, it was MK ultra, it was operation bluebird and then yeah. it was operation Artichoke. Artichoke.
0: Yeah. And then there's connections with the MK ultra and both the JFK assassinations and the Robert Kennedy Assassinations, right? I mean, there's possible yeah, more, connection. It's plausible, so, I should say.
1: Uh, more so, I think, with the RFK one. That's the one I'm. No, you're right. There is a.
0: JFK no, you said um, I mean, so JFK. Oh, my,
1: no, 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 no. It's my favorite. Let me tell the story. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I talked. I talked about how wash brain came out of the Korean War, and mm-hmm. what happened was there was all these uh, soldiers, American soldiers, in the Korean War who were captured by the Korean slash Chinese forces. And then they went on the radio and they were saying, oh, the U.S. had us spraying things across the uh, Korean peninsula to kill people. And the U.S. military knew that this wasn't true. So they said, well, why are they repeating these things that aren't true? Like they they sound genuinely convinced. It's not like there's a gun to their head. They, They are convinced this happened. When these guys were repatriated at the end of the war, they realized that they had been brainwashed. And they brought in this guy, Louis Jolion West. Uh, also known as dr jolly west he was like a psychologist or psychiatrist and he was responsible for deprogramming these people so the the, here's my favorite yeah my favorite part of my entire book conspiracies uncovered so you guys all know the story of jfk jfk probably killed by lee harvey oswald or at least oswald's in on it and then before Oswald can go to trial, Jack Ruby kills Lee Harvey Oswald.
0: Who was a nightclub owner with ties to the mob. Is that right? The,
1: yeah, the <laughs> yeah the New Orleans mob who RFK had aggressively gone after. And so that's uh, JFK's brother, Robert. Right. Aggressively gone out after and booted their boss, Carlos Marcello, out of the country. So there's that. And we can't get into all those threads because it goes on forever, man. But so Jack Ruby... He goes to trial. His pro bono lawyer is Melvin Belli of Zodiac Killer fame late, a little later on. And Belli tries to argue he's he was not legally sane at the time that this happened. And this defense fails. Jack Ruby's found guilty and he's all angry at Belli and he, he wants appeals. So, for his appeals, there was a guy in the court who was both a lawyer and a psychiatrist, I think. And Jack Ruby was impressed by that guy, says, I want him to be my lawyer. So this guy becomes his lawyer for the appeals. This uh, lawyer or psychiatrist says to him, I think a good way to start would be to get your mental health assessed again. So why don't we have someone do that? I know just the guy. And so Jack Ruby's in his prison cell. And landing at Dallas Love Field is Dr. Jolly West, of all people, who steps off the plane Hmm. and he goes into Ruby's cell. It's just the two of them alone. And he comes out. And to my understanding, there are throngs of reporters. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, it seems that sometime within – The last 72 hours, Mr. Ruby has had a complete psychotic break. I can't do anything for the man. I can't make sense of him. There it is. And from that moment on, Jack Ruby was never diagnosed as not being psychotic. And before that, he had never been diagnosed as being psychotic. So So, you take a CIA mind control guy, no conspiracy theory. This part's proven. It's linked linked to the Korean war deprogramming people who've been brainwashed. And then he's the guy that walks into Jack Ruby's cell, walks out and suddenly Jack Ruby's lost his marbles.
0: Wow. That's, that's really fascinating stuff.
1: It is right. Like that to me is, but I've got to be wary because I want to believe it so badly. (laughs) Do you know what
0: I mean? Like <laughs> that's how I feel with a lot of this stuff, though. I feel like I'm reading, I'm going, I want this to be true, and then I'm like, yeah, but it's p- probably not. But it's still fun to 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 think about it. What if it is? There's always a possibility with all this stuff. I mean, you never know. You, you don't know for sure.
1: Yeah, and the links too pop up all over the place. Like for instance, I don't know that this made the final cut of my book, but I was really pressuring the publisher to keep it in. Somebody involved in a 1947 UFO sighting, which was the first real flying saucer sighting that was popularized in the USA, Kenneth Arnold sighting of flying objects around Mount Rainier, somebody involved in that later appeared as a witness in the trial of Clay Shaw, who was the only person ever prosecuted for the assassination of John F. Kennedy by Jim Garrison in uh, New Orleans.
0: What? That's wild. I'm going to have to Google that one.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I didn't have time to really look into it. If I had two months to put this book together. Yeah. Conspiracies uncovered. So I'm just working without sleep like a madman, just mainlining all this information. And, and same behind the horror, too. I had three months. So hence the part of sometimes feeling like you're on drugs, like you're sleep deprived and sure, you know, um, doing various things to to keep yourself awake or to get yourself in the right headspace and then just mainlining all this information. Right. And so, yeah, there were things like that, like major connections that you're like, is that actually true? Hmm. Is that, so another one is that David Ferry, who was one of the uh, conspirators, um, linked to Clay Shaw, the guy that was put on trial for the murder of JFK. David Ferry was connected to Mothman somehow. What? And so, yeah, I can't even remember how it was. Like he was, a, he he might, I think it, they made the argument that he was there as a man in black. David Ferry was also Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, f- flight instructor in this sort of junior aircraft thing. I mean- <sighs> This
0: is crazy. Well, and also like, and we don't have time to get into all this, but the whole operation paperclip thing and the Nazi rat lines, how they took a lot of these Nazis and brought them over to America and and hired them as scientists and doctors and stuff for probably a lot of the MK ultra type stuff. I mean, that's a whole nother rabbit hole you can fall down. It's, it's crazy. Um, But I got to ask you about the uh, environmental modifications weapons chapter, because I had a lot of people on the last conspiracy theory guy I had on. They were asking about chemtrails, and I don't think he really talked about that in his. But you talk about it in in your book. um, And I don't know a lot about this. So maybe just give a little tease because we want people to read the book. But what is the deal with the chemtrails? Because some of this is real stuff, right?
1: Yeah. So chemtrails. Basically, people have looked at the white line that that follows a plane streaking across the sky, and they say that's the government spraying stuff on us. Now, I wanted to do a chemtrails chapter, but I also wanted to do one on the harp facility in Alaska, and I didn't have enough chapters. So when I found out that there was a conspiracy theory link between the HARP facility and the chemtrails. I said, oh, good, I can do a twofer, I can get them both in. So one of the chemtrails conspiracy theories is that they are little bits of metal. And this harp facility in Alaska, which which studies activity in the ionosphere, they're transparent about that, but sh- sort of shoots these beams into the ionosphere that can then be sort of transmitted through these falling metal chemtrail particles and that this can influence the weather to the degree of starting hurricane katrina and other types of catastrophes so that is kind of how i wrote about chemtrails in the environmental modifications chapter but there's also people that think that chemtrails are like a biological agent Mm. or or that the metal is is put there because it um, is used to make people dumber, or or to poison people, basically to make humans weaker so that they're easier to control. Some say that it's to destroy crops so hmm. that um, large wow. multinational corporations can come in with a solution and buy up large portions of land. So the chemtrails is like um, it's like a, a guitar riff. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's caught on and the people like it, but let's say that no group of conspiracy theorists plays the riff quite the same way.
0: Right. Okay. Fair enough. So I had a question for you that this wasn't in the book, but why do you think, cause you know, we talk about in both your books, obviously, you know, we talk about killers and serial killers. Why? are there no serial killers anymore? Is, is the serial killer now the mass shooter? Is that kind of what it's morphed into? Because I just don't hear of a lot of serial killers anymore. I definitely hear about mass shooters a lot.
1: Yeah. So there are still serial killers, but they are completely unremarkable. And the ones that are re- remarkable are guys they caught who were doing it in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, BTK, Gary Ridgeway, Rodney Alcala, Samuel o. Little, who turned out to kill like something like ninety-two people,
0: or the Golden State Killer. You hear about that one?
1: Oh, yeah, D'Angelo. That's another one. Right. right. So, the, when we do hear about a serial killer, it's a guy that was doing it in the past. We seem only to be interested in the resolution of these old mysteries. There are still active serial killers, but for some reason, and everyone agrees, they are just incredibly dull. They're boring. It, it, The amount of times I've seen, like, over a month, a guy cruised around his city shooting prostitutes. Like, I've seen that story so many times. Like, he killed four of them and went to jail. His name is Chris Allen. I just made that up. But, But you know what I mean? Like, a generic name, a boring MO, just absolutely nothing to talk about. So they're still out there. There seem to be less of them. Well, and and they can be caught so much easier now.
0: It's hard for them to go on for decades because of the DNA stuff. I mean, they've got to be really good at covering their tracks if they can't, if they do want to continue.
1: There you go. So it's like DNA CCTV cameras. I mean, everyone's got a mobile device on them now, which tracks them. So yeah, it could be just Darwinistic in that either people who try to be like the serial killers of your are caught on their first kill or they don't even try to do that because they realize how easy it will be for them to be apprehended and yeah i think that uh, so, i mean maybe it's something generationally uh you're right the mass shooter the rampage shooter seems to be more of the th- the thing now although i would argue that it in itself has become we've seen so much of it we're having like, I think last year there were more mass shootings than there were days in the year, in the year. So multiple probably. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so it's almost become like all similarly redundant, Mm -hmm. much quicker than serial killers. It had this flare up, you know, I probably say when people became really concerned, it was like Columbine, you know, around then. Yeah. Uh, Not that there wasn't bad ones before there were, but Around Columbine, they had like Virginia Tech with uh, Cho, and around the time of, I, I think maybe Sandy Hook. You know, you could name that guy Adam Lanza, and then the Vegas shooting. It was the one that really seemed to be the last one that really, you know, forgive the saying, popped in the media. Right, that that was a big event. The Vegas shooting. They kept covering, kept covering it just because of the sheer amount of fatalities, the most by firearm in American history and yeah. hundreds of people wounded. But after that, like there has continued to be mass murders, but, and, and yeah, there's certainly getting a lot more media coverage in the serial killer cases because they seem to go more national. Whereas the serial killer cases are local It used to be like that probably because the numbers are down on the serial killers. So, you know, the 33 kids in the crawl space, that doesn't happen anymore.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. some crazy stuff. Well, awesome. Well, and you have, um, I'll have to come back on here. Cause, uh, we just covered, we even cover all these, uh, the stuff in your books. <laughs> we have, you have other books too. You have, uh, books on, uh, uh, can- killings in Canada book on, uh, necrophilia and you do a podcast and you do music and you do all sorts of other stuff. So people need to go on your website. Is your website up to date? I hope so. Or are you finding the books there? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh Cole North killer. That's the basically authoritative tomb of Canadian serial killers. And that's rampage. That's all about mass murders and spree killers in Canada.
0: Okay. So I'll have yeah. to check those out and then I'll have to have you back on here again to talk yeah, more sure, about man. that stuff. That was a lot of fun.
1: That was crazy. We blew through so many things. Where did we start? We, we, I think we started Jaws. with Jaws. We started with Jaws. Kind of started so with Jaws. Ed Gein. Yeah. Jaws, Ed Gein. Amityville Horror, Men in Black, MK,
0: MK Ultra, Ultra, The Assassinations, JFK. Aliens, Area 51, Mothman Prophecies. We got it all. So um, I do like yeah. to end each episode with a charity. Is there a nonprofit or charity that you would recommend people throw a few bucks to if they've got a few extra bucks
1: laying around? Yeah, well, I'm a bit biased, but the reason I'm a part of this charity is because I think it's. Doing great work. It's the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases, oh. which I'm vice president. So, okay, we work with local, um, sorry, we work with law enforcement to look at local cases uh, that haven't been solved. And we bring in seasoned detectives who have either retired or you know they've got enough mileage on them that they, they can do this. We bring in behavior, um, behavioral specialists like myself, we bring in DNA experts, pathologists, that's great. And what we do is we take a look at these cases and we see if we can bring them to resolution. So you will be most likely contributing. If you contribute to the American investigative society of cold cases, ASOC, you'll most likely be contributing to us uh, doing DNA testing.
0: That's awesome. Well, that's great. I hope we catch more bad guys for sure. I love that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lee, for doing this. I appreciate it.
1: That was a hell of a fun time.
0: Yeah, that was awesome. I'll have to Definitely, like I said, I'll have to have you on again for sure.
1: Okay. I can't wait. All right. See it. you later. See you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Wow. Is your mind blown too? Because I feel like I did after the episode with uh, author Jay Dyer. So much more information to look into and things to Google and more rabbit holes to go down. So make sure to check out Lee's website and order his books. And follow him on Twitter to keep up to date with his projects. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And if you want to support the podcast, you can comment or like things or give it a thumbs up. That kind of thing will help me out. And feel free to hit me up on social media and let me know what you think of the episode and if you enjoyed it. And what kind of guests that you'd like to see on the show. Have a great rest of your day. And remember, shoot for the Moon.